It's the Growing for Market podcast. Quitting and going full-time on the farm has made the farm so much more successful. The stress levels are higher, but that ultimately they feel a lot more fulfilled. So if you're out there and listening to this and you're also, because I, even leading up to this decision, I asked so many farmers, what should I do? Should I do this? And everybody's advice was go for it. And I think that's the advice that I have now too. And if it doesn't work, you can go back to put to that job, you know, or we always say, we'll go get a job at Home Depot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm sure they're always hiring. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Growing for Market podcast where we talk about growing, marketing, and the business of growing vegetables and flowers for local markets like farmer's markets, CSAs, farm stands, and local wholesaling. I'm Katie Kula, your host and a writer for Growing for Market magazine. For 32 years, the only magazine devoted solely to flower and vegetable market farmers. If you're enjoying the podcast, just wait till you see the magazine. Go to growingformarket.com for more. Also, if you could give us a follow and a rating, it really helps other like-minded people find the podcast. And now let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. It's with their generous support that we can bring you the podcast for free. Whether it's tomatoes to market, flowers in the spring, or vegetables for your family, growing in a greenhouse protected from the weather provides the right environment for a harvest you can count on. Rimmel greenhouses are strong, durable, and easy to assemble, offering the quality that you need to grow productively year-round. Rimmel greenhouses are proudly built right here in America and shipped to anywhere in the U.S. With technical sales staff members located across the country, many with growing experience, the Rimmel Greenhouses team of experts will serve as your trusted partner every step of the way to ensure that you get exceptional value from your greenhouse investment. Visit Rimmel.com to get a quote today. Start 2024 off right with Local Line. Local Line is the all-in-one sales platform for direct market farms and food hubs. Increase your sales and streamline your processes with features including e-commerce, inventory management, subscriptions, online payments, and more. Trusted by thousands of farmers across North America, Local Line is the platform you need to take your farm to the next level. Subscriptions start as low as $39 per month. Try Local Line today and receive a free premium feature for one year and receive 15% off Local Line's marketing services using the coupon code Growing for Market. That coupon code is Growing, the number four, Market, Growing for Market, all one word, for 15% off Local Line's marketing services and one free premium feature for a year at Local Line. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm excited to talk with Rebecca Kutzer-Rice. Rebecca owns Moonshot Farm, a specialty cut flower farm in East Windsor, New Jersey. She and her husband, Mark, started the farm in 2019 with big goals of providing sustainably grown flowers year-round, literally 52 weeks of the year. In fact, they thought their goals were so lofty that it informed their farm's name. They are trying to, quote, shoot the moon, as they say. However, it must be working because they do, in fact, grow flowers year-round, including in a geothermal greenhouse for retail markets in and around New York City. Rebecca clearly has tons to share with our audience, and I'm excited to chat with her about flowers, how they are making this work to harvest year-round in their climate, and also her recent big shift to quitting her off-farm job so that both she and Mark could work full-time on the farm. 
Rebecca wrote a great article for the September 2023 Growing for Market about that move, including interviewing many other farmers who have made the same leap. It's a big decision, and we'll talk about the successes and challenges she and others have faced. Rebecca, welcome. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Katie. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Okay. So as always, let's start at the beginning. You and your husband, Mark, did not start your careers with farming, and it sounds like maybe neither of you even grew up in an agricultural region. Is that accurate? That's right. Yeah. So can you share with our audience how you got into farming and started Moonshot Farm? I mean, if it wasn't being modeled for you, what was what's your story here? Yes. So I'm from Virginia originally. I grew up loving nature, but I then kind of rebelled against that and moved to New York City, where I met Mark in my 20s in the 2010s in Brooklyn. And always thought we would always live in New York. But while we were there, we, I think Mark also has, he grew up in Wisconsin. He also loves like nature. He was a Boy Scout. So we had what we called our little farm in Brooklyn. So we had chickens and some bees. And then we always said, you know, oh, someday we'll move to a farm. But after our daughter was born in 2018, she was in the NICU briefly. She's fine now, but it kind of opened our eyes. We realized life is kind of short. And if you want to do something, you better do it. So we started looking at some properties. And in 2019 and early spring, we moved out here to New Jersey. So no agricultural background really at all. Mark likes to say he worked on a farm for like a few weeks, I think, in high school. But other than that, I think we both love nature and I always wanted to own and run a business. So actually, I think got into farming via a love of business as opposed to a love of agriculture. Oh, yeah. that I think that's actually a route that not many people think of, but is actually not that uncommon. And I, I've observed that some of the most successful farmers I've known really, whether they start with it, they love the entrepreneurial aspect of it, you know? I think so. Yeah. So how did you get the knowledge you needed then if you dove head first like that city to farm? Yeah. <laughs> well, we've been super lucky and I always like to, I mean, we're so privileged, right? We're a hetero couple. We're white. We had good jobs. We moved out here. I was still working a job. So we had a lot of room to make a lot of mistakes. So we've been able to scale fast and waste a lot of money. So, you know, I definitely want to acknowledge that. So if anyone out there is not in that position, like that is your own journey too. But we have gotten a lot of help from Rutgers, which is our agricultural extension here in New Jersey. And Rutgers published like a series about niche crops. And one of the niche crops that they identified that could be profitable on small acreage was cut flowers. So we kind of trialed that and it went very well. We were sort of selling eggs off our front porch and some little jars of cut flowers. And the cut flowers always sold really fast. And we thought, hmm, you know, maybe there is something here. And just a few years later, I guess this is our fourth season. We've scaled way up. And yeah, now this is both of our full-time jobs. So is that why you chose the flowers? Was because you saw it as a unique marketing niche 
Yeah, pretty much. You know, we have about nine and a half acres here, so we don't have a huge property. We're surrounded by these hundred acre farms full of soy and corn, and we knew that that would never make any kind of profit off our small acreage. We tried a few other things. We tried garlic. It got really horrible garlic maggots and like the whole mm. thing was really gross. We threw it all away and the flowers really was just what stuck. Yeah. So we also are members and discovered very early on the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, the ASCFG. And that has been monumental in teaching us so much. I got a mentorship through that program. I've been paired with a third generation cut flower farmer, John LaSalle in Massachusetts. And John has taught us so, so much. So there really is an amazing community out there of of cut flower farmers who have really been so generous with their knowledge. Okay. So sounds like a good niche, but then the goal of providing flowers year round. <laughs> this is amazing to me. I On our farm, we, we grew and sold vegetables year round, but you can like store a vegetable. <laughs> so let's talk about this. Like, I feel like this is one of the really cool parts about what your farm is doing. How are you making this work? The marketing, the growing, the harvesting. Tell me more. Definitely. This is what I'm most excited about, I think. So New Jersey, a lot of people don't know this, but New Jersey has a huge cut flower industry. We're actually just second after California in terms of cut flower producers in the U.S., like many millions of dollars. There are so many cut flower farms here, both really big and really small. There's like five within a 15-minute drive of me. And there's a lot of really awesome, like long-established farms. So it's kind of like very early on we realized we needed a niche that nobody was really doing. And we also were recognizing that pretty much half the year, there were no local flowers available. And we started thinking, you know, is there a way to do that? And there are some flower farmers, a few in New Jersey, more kind of across the country who are growing year round. And John LaSalle, um, that farmer in Massachusetts I mentioned, has been growing year round. You know, his family has since the early 20th century. So we really honed in on that as a way to to kind of market our flowers and be something unique that other people weren't doing. So uh, maybe this is about you're about to jump into like in practice is it just certain flowers that will tolerate the conditions? Obviously you have a heated greenhouse but you can't grow every flower in the winter, right? It's not like the same as summer just with a heated greenhouse. That's right. I I think you probably could grow every flower. I mean, certainly in Holland, they are really pushing those boundaries. But at least from our perspective, sort of from a more beginner perspective, there are certain flowers that will bloom under cooler temperatures and short days. I guess I don't really know much about vegetable farming, but my understanding is that you kind of plant the vegetables and then say you, you plant cabbage for a winter harvest and it just kind of sits there until you're ready to harvest. There isn't a ton of active growth happening like in January. Yes, correct. Is that, is that right? Okay. <laughs> so, so with flowers, it's very different and the flowers are actually actively growing and blooming. And unlike a cabbage that can kind of sit there, most flowers have a two to three day max, sometimes a two to three hour window in which they can be harvested. 
So the flowers we focused on originally when winter growing were anemones and ranunculus, as well as tulips and freesia. And all four of those will bloom under those short day temperatures or short day conditions and cooler temperatures. Now we're kind of starting to do some weird things with supplemental lighting and night interruption lighting. So kind of tricking the plants that it actually is summer. So TBD, but this year we're growing lilies a lot later. So previously lilies are a longer day blooming plant. So our season with them would end and usually in October, but we have gorgeous lilies blooming now and hopefully through Christmas with supplemental lighting. So there's a lot of cool things that you can do. And just for context for our listeners, since this might run later, it is November 14th right now as we talk. So definitely not the darkest yet of the year, but we're just about a month out from the darkest part of the year. We're getting there. Yeah. And our cooler is crammed full. So, so yeah, it's, it's very, it's really fun to be growing these bright, beautiful flowers really when there's nothing else around blooming outside. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yes, you do need heated greenhouses. I guess vegetables can be grown in the cold is my understanding, you know, especially if you have some like unheated high tunnels, but I think minimum temps is probably 38 to 40 for most cut flowers to bloom. Okay, right. And you have a geothermal greenhouse. Tell me about this. So is this being heated passively by the heat of the earth? What is? How does that work? Yeah, so it's pretty similar to a lot of the climate battery greenhouses that you might have heard about, but a bit more powerful and a bit, it just adds a lot more heat. So it consists of big tubes in the ground, but unlike a lot of these climate battery greenhouses that are filled with just air kind of forced through there with fans, it actually has antifreeze in there. And so, and there's heat bumps in the greenhouse. So on the hot days, which even in January, it gets really hot in there, the greenhouse pumps are pumping all that hot air back down into the earth, which is acting Mm. as a big heat sink. And then during the cold nights, pumping that heat back into the greenhouse. And it's pretty remarkable. It's working very well. It's just our second season now. So we built it in the fall of 2021. And then we had that first winter with it last year. And now here we are about to have our second season with it. So, so far it's working very well. Yeah. And then presumably the cost of heating that to that temperature is much lower than if you were just using a more traditional greenhouse heating method. It is. Yeah. And it's so much more powerful too. So the geothermal system is able to heat to around 55 degrees and with propane. Yeah. Even on like a very cold day, like we got to. Yeah. That's really warm. Yeah, we got to like negative one and it was still really 55 in there, which was amazing. And this is all Fahrenheit, obviously. But our propane houses are usually heated to about 40. And those cost, like especially in the cold months, you know, anywhere from a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a month or even more to heat those. And the geothermal, it does use some electricity, but usually around a hundred or two hundred dollars a month. So the pay like it was very expensive to build. I like to be upfront about that. But we did get a Rural Energy for America program grant, a REAP grant. And that grant has now gone up to 50% for farmers, which is huge. It's a lot of money. And then with the new tax credits are covering like 32%. So a lot of the, the cost can be paid for by the government. So I'm giving some talks on it this winter in more detail. But 
as part of that, have been doing some more detailed analysis. And I think the payback period's around, it's like seven to 10 years. The system itself is rated to 15 years for those heat pumps and a century for the loop in the ground. So it's not as prohibitive as it once was, that's for sure. And what are the walls made out of? Is it like a polycarbonate? House? Yeah. Okay. The greenhouse is just a regular double, like double inf- inflated poly greenhouse. Yeah. Just a, okay. Mm-hmm. And those we got through the Equip, the NRCS program grants, and then we retrofitted it with the geothermal system. Okay. I understand that it was expensive up front, but what you're describing for the operating costs, both the savings and the higher temperature seems like a really big win if you can afford to make it happen. Definitely. And the cut flowers in the winter are so profitable that it pays for itself in the first six weeks of, of running just because they're so like, they're just, they're, they're money. And if you can sell them, if you can grow them, it was a no brainer for us. Did you just say that you paid for this whole thing in the first six weeks? After the grant, after yeah, the tax right, right. credits. After the grant. Yeah. And the next- Wow. Yeah. Our out of pocket. Yeah. 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 Wow. Okay. So, well, that worked. (laughs) And now let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. It's with their generous support that we can bring you the podcast for free. Today's episode of the Growing for Market podcast is brought to you by BCS America. On our farm, we've had our BCS two-wheel tractor for over a decade, and with no belts to slip, its all-gear-driven construction is still going strong. Though we originally got it for rototilling, we kept it even when we went mostly no-till because it can do so many other things around the farm. From snow blowing to making raised beds with a rotary plow, to chipping wood, it can do just about anything you might need on a farm with the right attachment. Need to shred a cover crop? A BCS flail mower will make quick work of even the most vigorous cover crop and chop it up so it breaks down quickly. Want to stir in compost or amendments without inverting soil layers? A power harrow turns your BCS into a precise tilting machine with depth control so you don't mix deeper than you want to. With so many attachments to choose from, it truly is the Swiss Army knife of farm implements. It's why, instead of saying two-wheel tractor, so many people just say BCS. Visit bcsamerica.com to find sale pricing, build your custom BCS package, find your nearest dealer, and more. I am so excited to welcome Bootstrap Farmer as a sponsor of the podcast. I've known them for a dozen years, and if anyone tells you nothing is made in the USA anymore, well, they're headquartered and warehoused in Paris, Texas. They make their own all-metal, all-inclusive greenhouse frames of steel made in the USA and fabricated in Texas, and their heavy-duty, reusable propagation and microgreens trays are Midwest-made. With a complete range of supplies, they have just about everything for propagation and growing, including heat mats, ground cover, frost blankets, silage tarps, irrigation, and trellising. Want to color code your seed starting flats? They've got heavy-duty trays that will last for years in a full range of colors, great for keeping farm seedlings separate from retail or just for fun. And they have an experienced team of growers to support everything they sell. If you've heard of the NRCS High Tunnel Initiative providing grants for hoop houses but have been put off by the paperwork, Bootstrap Farmer has a guide that will walk you through the application process so you can get your hoop house funded this winter. For all that and more, check out Bootstrap Farmer at bootstrapfarmer.com. And now back to the show. 
Where are you doing the talks? If there's people in your region, are these at some farming oh, yeah. conferences this winter? One is at a farming conference in February. I think it's the New Jersey Vegetable Farmers Association. And then the other is the webinar, actually, with the ASCFG, their webinar series. And that's just in a month in December. So hopefully we can get into some of the more nerdy details around the, the geothermal system then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's soon enough that this might not come out before that, but maybe if there's a recording or something, we can try to include that in the show notes. Okay. Definitely. So I think I also pitched a Growing for Market article about this. So hopefully that'll come out next year. <laughs> Great. Okay. Yes. If people don't subscribe, they should subscribe just so that they can see that. Yeah. I'm really eager to get this technology out there. I think it's a lot more affordable and attainable, especially with these new grants and tax credits than it ever has been before. So to me, it's a little bit more expensive than growing with conventional fuel, but we are also using organic pesticides and beneficial insects, and those are more expensive than conventional systemic pesticides. So it's a choice and it's a marketing aspect and it's what your customers want. So I, I really hope to see more growers trying to trying to use it. And where are you marketing these flowers, both in the winter and the summer? You're close enough to market in New York City still, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So we're we're in central New Jersey. We're about an hour from Philly and an hour from New York City. And right here around the farm, we have a really great market. So we've got a great customer base that's just within five to 10 miles of our farm. But as we grow, we're kind of starting to look beyond that. And this year we started selling at a farmer's market in New York City. We're pretty much all retail focused. So we do a little bit of wholesale to florists. But for us on our small acreage, we, we do live in a very high cost of living area. Trying to sell for the highest price we can has kind of been the goal. Mm-hmm. And I think having the winter flowers. So we sell at a really great farmer's market in New York City. And it's kind of crazy. You know, we're pretty new farmers. There's maybe like a dozen flower farmers there in the summertime. If we had just shown up with sunflowers and zinnias, there's no way we would have been accepted into that market. But because we had tulips in January when nobody else had cut flowers, we were able to get our foot into the door. So that's really changed the the game for us and the scale at which we're able to grow and, and meet demand. So it's very exciting. And you actually also wrote an article about your first season winter growing for a another article in Growing for Market from the March 2023 issue about some of the hard lessons. What kind of adjustments have you had to make in the process? And what are you doing differently now going into this winter? Yeah, definitely. That was such a fun article to write. I, At least for us, like our farm is a bit of a mess you know, we're making mistakes all the time and it's fun to be honest about it and not just say, here's everything that we're doing right. So our first season was a a winter growing was definitely a mess and things have gotten a lot better since then. So one really big issue was (laughs) during, you know, the spring and the summer and even the fall, we've always relied on biological controls for pests. So we do a lot of like lace wings for aphids and we use these predatory mites for thrips and going into winter, we thought, oh, we'll just use those same biological controls. And we even talked to a pretty big supplier of those who said it would work as long as we kept the temperatures above freezing. 
Well, we learned the lesson like the very hard way that most of these insects under short days, even if the temps are really toasty, they don't continue to be active. And we had horrible, horrible pest issues. <laughs> so we've now switched to an organic, you know, pesticide spraying program in the winter. There's no bees flying anyway in the greenhouses. So we're pretty comfortable with that. And that's, I mean, the amount of stems we had to throw away because of pests was really bad that first year. So it's it's gotten a lot better. One biological control we do use even in the winter are beneficial nematodes. So we spray those pretty much every week or two weeks, all winter long, and they do continue to work. So I really recommend those for growers with thrips, which are one of our biggest issues. We also originally didn't put fans in any of our greenhouses. I think we figured if we were rolling the sides up, we did have some vents that that would be sufficient for airflow. <laughs> and I guess I also thought fans were going to be really expensive. Um, we then had a lot of fungal issues, a lot of airflow issues, a ton of powdery mildew. So we since have put a ton of fans, usually just the half fans in all of our greenhouses. And they weren't as expensive as I thought. And they're really quite cheap to run. So that's definitely something I wish we had done sooner. And then I guess just like the third big lesson for me is really focusing on profitability and how much it's costing us to grow things in the winter. In the summer, it can be fun to grow something just because it's beautiful or maybe it will draw customers to your booth or you just love to grow it. But in the winter on limited space, when you're buying you know, heat, you've really got it. Like every square foot has to earn its keep. So we've been pretty aggressively cutting stuff out and just trying to dedicate like about 10% or so to trials. So we are doing some trials this winter, but really mindfully aware of what we're trialing. I Honestly, if you hadn't had mistakes your first winter doing something so different, such as growing all these cut flowers, I would have been totally bowled over. <laughs> it seems like that's the nature of trying something new. And in this case, something that not a lot of people are doing, there's a lot less information out there at this point. So it's great. I love that you're experimenting, having success, and then documenting it too and sharing it so that other farmers can learn from it too. Definitely. And even though it was a mess, you know, we had a lot of fun. We still, we broke even pretty much that first season. So it wasn't like we actually lost money. And then the big key for us is we were able to keep our employees on payroll all winter and retain them going into the next season, which then really set us up for a, a, our best spring ever. How many employees do you have and does it shift from season to season or are you able to sort of smooth it out? We're able to sort of smooth it out because the farm's been really growing in size. So pretty much like three years in a row, we've like doubled our income. So we're kind of always chasing like what is the appropriate level of staffing. So right now we have three full-time year-bound employees and then a couple of extra part-time workers. But I expect by the end of next season, it will be a bit larger. Okay. In that same article, you had suggested that you liked winter growing, that someday you might actually take summers off. Is that something you're actually considering doing? Or are you just thinking summers are the season when, for example, you go on vacation? Because that was another thing you mentioned in the article was one of your big oopsies was that you left for a vacation and inclement weather hit and and that was really hard on the farm. And so you were like, maybe vacations should happen in the summer, which is, of course, the opposite of what so many other farmers are doing. 
But yeah, what what are you think? Are you are you really feeling like, wow, summer's gonna maybe be our downtime at some point? I think so. We're definitely still leaning in that direction. So this year in 2023, we ran a full year CSA. So we had CSAs pretty much every week of the year, which was really crazy. And I don't recommend it. We did it, you know, to raise capital to pay for that geothermal greenhouse. So next year, we're sort of taking July off from doing our CSA as sort of a way to get our toes wet. I think we'll probably still go to farmer's markets in July, but I hope that we can maybe have staff cover them more. And we're certainly growing a lot less in the summer than we are in the winter. I was amazed this year our January sales exceeded our July sales, which I know is really different than it is on most farms. Yes, very different. Although I have known a few farms that do winter CSAs and not summer CSAs with vegetables. So clearly you can think outside the box if you're, you know, willing to work in those harder weather seasons, although you're probably pretty cozy in those greenhouses of yours. It is really nice. I think it's nicer to work in those cozy greenhouses than it is in August in the field, for sure. Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Summer can be hot. Although my husband is the one that does all of our farmer's markets, and he would probably disagree with me because he has to stand <laughs> outside even in the January like snowstorms. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, that's true. Farmer's market, you don't get to have the cozy element. And now let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. It's with their generous support that we can bring you the podcast for free. There's a lot of talk these days about the value of certification. With the growing distrust of labels and customers who are more savvy than ever, farmers need better options to showcase their commitment to truly sustainable growing practices. Certified Naturally Grown is a peer review certification focused on the highest ideals of the organic movement. They keep costs low and paperwork to a minimum so you can keep focused on farming. CNG's peer-to-peer approach encourages knowledge exchange and strengthens regional networks. See why farmers throughout North America are choosing Certified Naturally Grown and apply today at naturallygrown.org. Every fall on our farm, we order a couple sling bags of Fort V potting soil from Vermont Compost. Over the years, we've tried a lot of the compost and potting soil options out there, from making our own to buying off the shelf. And we keep coming back to Vermont compost, both for overall quality and batch-to-batch consistency. It's that consistency that keeps us coming back. There are so many variables that affect how good your seedlings are. We know Vermont compost will give our plants the best possible foundation, so we can stick to worrying about all the other stuff and not the potting soil. Visit vermontcompost.com GFM for more details. And now back to the show. Okay, so those those were some a great article, some great points. And then just more recently here in September 2023, kind of shifting our focus in the interview, you published another article about your decision to quit your off-farm job and work full-time on the farm, which is a huge step and congratulations. Thanks. Let's talk about this. How did you and Mark plan for this and how did you, what, what was the final decision or was it, did you have a plan and this was just the year that the plan got to the point where you thought you could do this? How's it going? All of that. 
Yeah. And I loved writing that article because it was so fun talking to all these other farmers who have made this leap. Funny, there's a game that we love to play. It's called the farming game. Have you ever played that? Mm -mm. Is it like a board game? Yeah, it's kind of like Monopoly, I guess. My husband grew up playing it and the it's really funny. It's like a game about farming and then the goal, like to win the game, you quit your off-farm job. So we okay. <laughs> like to joke that I won the farming game. But, you know, Mark had been full-time on the farm ever since we moved here. I mean, at the beginning, he was essentially a stay-at-home dad helping build this farm business while I had a full-time job. And I always wanted to quit my job. I'm actually, I, I was a writer kind of originally and then got into sort of a more corporate job working in cybersecurity. And I, I didn't love it. <laughs> That's an understatement. So I'd always hoped to pivot and do something more creative and fulfilling. But we do have two young baby daughters and there was just, it was way too scary to kind of just without a plan to make that leap. And the farm has certainly grown over the years. And then the kind of big decision point for us was when we were accepted into the market in New York City. It's a weekday market. So just in terms of childcare and being able to produce enough to go to that market, we knew there was sort of no way that we'd be able to keep my job and do the market. So we definitely had a plan and a date when I gave notice and we socked away savings for years. And then finally, I was able to quit. And it was very exciting. And so far, so good. In the article, I talked a lot about how my stress level has certainly never been higher. And it was really validating to talk to other farmers who are also kind of experiencing that. I think part of me expected, oh, I'm not going to be juggling this job and the farm, so I'm going to be a lot more <laughs> relaxed. But now the farm has so much more pressure to succeed that it's, you know, we're, we're certainly working more than we ever were before. But it's also really exciting. The farm has never, you know, never been better. I quit in January and by June, we had already hit the previous year's sales. So the farm just really it kind of like unlocked our potential and took us to the next level, I think. And the other farmers I spoke to, I mean, everybody had the same experience. Everyone was so positive about it. Really just feels like that was like the right choice that to make for them. And it was really interesting too, kind of the different impetus that people had. So one farmer I spoke to, actually several, the pandemic had, they had lost their job and were kind of forced to make it work. And that actually also caused the farm to kind of open up. And other people like me had sort of planned it more long-term. So that was pretty interesting as well. Mm -hmm. So is the primary challenge the stress of just having so much more at stake now with the farm income or have you encountered any other challenges that maybe that you didn't expect with being full-time on the farm? Yeah. I mean, for me too, also I'm farming full-time with my spouse, which is, yeah. of course is probably a whole other topic we <laughs> I could talk about. We could have like a um, hundred podcast episodes <laughs> about this. We might need some wine for that one. Yeah. But, you know, I think even more so than before, we just, it's, we have to be so conscious about turning the farm off that, you know, there's times to just test the farm and times to just turn it off. I think one thing that surprised me is, and I think it's also because we're still 
in the honeymoon phase of it all. And we're, we still have some of those savings. So it's not quite as financially stressful, but we are like, we actually are making a profit now. Surprise, surprise. Like we kind of weren't until we had really faced that decision. So yeah, the, but the stress is probably the, the biggest one and the lack of work-life balance. We also have those two little children. So balancing childcare on top of everything else has been tricky to say the least. Yeah. And the other farmers I spoke to, I mean, I think everyone's had a pretty similar experience. Just that quitting and going full-time on the farm has made the farm so much more successful. The stress levels are higher, but that ultimately they feel a lot more fulfilled. So if you're out there and listening to this and you're also, because I, even leading up to this decision, I asked so many farmers, what should I do? Should I do this? And everybody's advice was go for it. And I think that's the advice that I have now too. And if it doesn't work, you can go back to put to that job, you know, or we always say, we'll go get a job at Home Depot. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm sure they're always hiring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. There were a couple of things you mentioned in there that I want to backtrack and dive into a little more. So first of all, how old are your kids right now? They are about 18 months and five. Okay. So pretty young. And what have you been doing for childcare? Have you, has it mostly been your husband when you were working off farm? Are you hiring anybody to help with that or... Yeah, it was mostly my husband. And then when I quit, and I always tell people, like, having a farm and being a mom are two separate jobs. At least for me, they really don't overlap. I feel like we see so many beautiful pictures. And I know you wrote some amazing articles about this as well. But we see these pictures of on Instagram of like the kids and I'm guilty of it too. But the reality is, you know, earlier today, my 18 month old was like pulling up plugs in the greenhouse. And then I realized it was like a poisonous flower and we're like rushing her inside to wash our hands. And that was all of our family farming for the day. So (laughs) I think, so for us, when I quit my job, in a large part, I quit to become a stay-at-home mom. So we definitely had kind of a choice. Did I want to hire more help for the kids or did I want to hire more help for the farm? And we decided on the latter. So we ended up hiring some more help for the farm so that I could be around the kids more often. And that's worked pretty well. Our oldest is now in pre-K and the baby somehow will be in going there next year too. So that's a big help as well. We're definitely farming a lot during nap time and at night when they're asleep. We sometimes have a joke that like Mark and I are the same person because people rarely see us at the same time. So either he's out working or I'm out working, but we don't get to farm much together these days because one of us has the kids. But I also know that it's temporary. I know I see people with nine and 10 and 15 year olds and it seems like it's a lot more easy to manage. So I'm looking forward to getting there someday. Yeah. Kids actually become helpful. Yeah. (laughs) So I hear as they get older, it's, it's amazing how it happens. And in the article, you also talked about diversifying income to make it work. What does that look like? I mean, obviously a lot of farms have diverse incomes just in terms of marketing avenues or crops, but you were talking even broader than that, like writing articles for going for market. What other kinds of income streams have you guys explored or do you see other farmers exploring? Yeah. So a lot of the farmers I spoke to, especially the vegetable farmers, were doing a lot more than just vegetables. So they had egg-laying chickens or broilers, or I think someone was doing like goat's milk. So this idea that they could, you know, do all these different 
avenues and kind of get a little bit of cash here and there, which I think is working really well for a lot of them. For us, we're super diversified in our crops, so we can kind of lose something and and it'll be okay. We're always trying to have sort of two big focal flowers each season. So if we have a complete crop failure, as we seem to often do, we'll, we'll still kind of make it through. And then you mentioned different sales avenues. So one farmer I spoke to had been doing a lot of wholesale to florists, but then after the pandemic happened and a lot of those florist avenues weren't as successful as they had been, kind of had to pivot and do more retail and now has both of those income streams. So it definitely seems like not putting all your eggs in one basket is the way that all of these farmers are, are making it happen. And yeah, we also talked in the article a bit about different side income streams. So some of the farmers are doing consulting, which seems to be very popular these days, or grant writing. And then I'm writing for Growing for Market, which I'm I'm really been loving. Some people have YouTube channels that might pay a little bit. So it definitely seems like there's a lot of farm adjacent sort of side gigs that can bring in a little bit of extra cash too. Yeah. Some other examples I can think of like that too, are people having Airbnb or hip camp kind of rentals on their properties too, things like that, that again, complement what's happening on the farm because, Hey, look, it's a cool place to come and stay, but bring in some different income. You had also mentioned that this year the farm is turning a profit for the first time. So does that mean that I mean, I know you've been starting up the farm, so I know how that goes. So I can only imagine that the first few years, what that meant was you were making money and you were just reinvesting it in the farm. That's right. Yeah. So is this the first year then, instead of reinvesting all of it in the farm, you're actually using some of it to pay your household bills? Or is that what that means for you? That's right. That is what that means for me. And it's really exciting because for a long time, I was constantly writing personal checks to the farm and kind of giving the farm more and more money, especially when I still had the off-farm job. We were investing in so much infrastructure. Um, We were really front-loading that. And again, we're so privileged that we were able to make that decision. But the idea we had at the time was we were going to invest in all this infrastructure and then I'd we'd finally be done building the farm and I could quit my job. Of course, I've since learned we'll never be done building the farm and there's always going to be more to invest in. But finally, we're writing texts from Moonshot Farm to us, you know, with owner draw in the in the line and it, it feels really, really good. Yeah. And we're, we've always also prioritized paying our staff well. So it was always kind of like we were the very last people to get paid, but we have to now, like otherwise we wouldn't be able to afford our groceries. So it, it feels really good. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I know that we started our farm well before we had kids. So it's like a whole different scenario. We were young. And so we decided right up front, we would just take that risk in both. We also didn't have good jobs. We had just graduated grad schools, which makes it a whole different decision making process when you're not giving up a good income. (laughs) But we just decided to both be on the farm right off the bat. And like when you don't have another income source, then you figure it out. You know, I mean, and that's not something people should just dive into without a plan. It's not like, oh, leap off this cliff and you'll find a way to fly. (laughs) But we always had to be doing that balance of how much of this season's profit are we going to reinvest in the farm while keeping enough to buy our groceries and 
pay our household electric bill and such. And it is a, a great motivator when you're trying to do both those things. But it also, like you said, it's really powerful to have two people investing the energy and the time and the enthusiasm to make it all work. It's full time. It's a whole different like chemistry experiment. You know, there's a lot more there. Definitely. It is all consuming. That is, that's for sure. And it is really motivating for us. I know in a way that it really never was before. I mean, it's like on Thursday nights, we're prepping for a market and we're always staying up until the middle of the night, just trying to get everything bunched and wrapped. And we definitely are staying up way later now than we would have a year ago, just because we have to make that. If we can get another $500 of product onto the van, well, that's $500 more into our pocket. Something else was everybody in that article had kind of sought external advice. So we worked with like a farm business consultant, Ellen Polishek, who I think actually has also written for Growing for Market. And she was an excellent advisor for us. Other people had, you know, bookkeepers or accountants, but I do think it's really good to take a hard look at your finances before making that decision. And what were some of the things that she helped you look at? What were some of the questions you were asked to consider about your financial situation? Well, a big one was like, how much do we really need to be bringing home in order to survive? So, you know, what is our mortgage? What is our daycare? And we decided that as like a base salary, we wanted to bring home $80,000, which to me, but not knowing very much like together. So I guess 40 each seemed like a really reasonable number. And then Ellen, and I've since confirmed this with a lot of sources, I guess a really normal, sustainable profit margin for a farm is like 15%. And so to bring home $80,000, we were going to need to sell over half a million dollars of flowers, which we definitely weren't at the time and we still aren't there yet. And so that was a real eye-opener for me, um, just realizing the amount that we would have to get out the door to kind of bring home what we needed to to survive on. We also took a really good hard look at labor and how much we were spending on labor. We actually realized maybe we could spend a little bit more and by spending a little bit more and hiring some extra hands that we could then hopefully get a little bit more money for the farm. Ellen also just helped us kind of break our books into more manageable chunks. So probably all farmers have that like seeds and plants line on schedule F, which is fine for your taxes, but doesn't provide a lot of detailed breakdown for you managing the business. So we've tried to break that up a lot more. So we have, we're growing a ton of lilies now. And so we have every two weeks we pay for our lily bulbs. And now we have a dedicated line in our books that is lily bulbs. So I can see immediately like how much we've spent on our lilies. So just I think being much more in the weeds in the books has has really helped us to to kind of understand what's really going on. And are you using QuickBooks to track all of that or do you use a different software? Yeah, we're actually using Zero, which is X X E R O. So I like manage our whole business from my phone and I found that Zero had a really great mobile app. So okay. I can do our books like every pretty much every day I do them. I set like a a habit of doing it every morning over coffee. I just like reconcile our expenses and it's super easy to do on the phone. So like I know there are some free accounting options. It's not free. It, I think it costs similarly to QuickBooks, but it's been really good for us. Okay. And part of why you chose it is because it was well suited to being on the phone specifically. 
Yeah, that's right. So I tried QuickBooks as well when we first got started, and it just didn't seem to have as great of, of mobile capabilities. Yeah, and QuickBooks is, um, I've used it since we started our farm, well, maybe the next year. I don't think I had it the very first year. So maybe since 2007 or 2008. And it's changed so much too in that time. It, it's been almost like a different program <laughs> from year to year. So yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of options out there. So zero, good to add another one to the pot. Yeah, I recommend it. Okay, great. Well, hopefully that'll be helpful to people to try out different things. Maybe other people are already using it. I'm just the old one who's still using QuickBooks because I've been farming since 2006. (laughs) There were not many options. I'll just say that in 2006. So in the article, you also address health insurance and benefits in general, which is a big shift. Again, this is one that since my husband and I had just graduated from grad school and didn't have good jobs was a non-issue for us. (laughs) We didn't already have health insurance, but I imagine for some people, giving up employer benefits is scary. How did that feel for you guys and how did you navigate that and what are you doing now? So that was the biggest and scariest part of leaving my job. I think because I was uninformed, I didn't know what it would look like. I knew that we had two young kids who were constantly getting sick the way kids do. I have two kids, but I've had a bunch of pregnancies and miscarriages. So I'd had a lot of health concerns and I was really nervous about it. But here in New Jersey, we were able to just go on the marketplace and really surprisingly, we're paying less now than we were paying with my private job. And our co-pays are actually less and we were able to keep all of our doctors and everything else. I do think New Jersey has really good subsidies compared to some other states, but I think in most states you can at least estimate, you know, what it will look like, what will be covered and not. And all of the farmers I spoke to in the article were on marketplace as well. The premiums ranged anywhere from $1 a month to something like $800 for a more sort of established farm, but none of it was overwhelming to any of the farmers. And everybody said this was really not a big concern compared to all the other concerns that are going on. So you should at least take a look and estimate and see what it will look like because maybe it's not as scary as as you think. Mm -hmm. We're really eager too to offer insurance to our employees, but at least here in New Jersey, anything we could offer would that be more expensive for them than it is for them to be just on marketplace. So that's where we're at now. And to access the marketplace, is that you would go to healthcare.gov? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. I will say, speaking again, as my started a farm in 2006 perspective, that the ACA really changed things for accessibility of healthcare in positive ways. We had years when we literally couldn't buy health insurance because it was either too expensive or literally not available in our region. So it's so great to hear that all these farmers are finding that really accessible and really affordable. That's such a really important sustainability element for a family farm. So that's awesome to hear that that's working out so well for you guys and for other people. Yeah, I was so relieved when I heard that from others as well. So so yeah, it's definitely not as scary as it seemed to me at first. And as you said, some of that's going to vary from state to state. I know different states have different levels of subsidies and and plan options, but certainly it's something people can do some research on. And I think too, in a lot of areas, there's even insurance agents who help people navigate some of that too. 
So if people feel overwhelmed about what it all means, there are people who can help you. Yeah. So overall, as you near the end of, well, I was going to say your first growing season, but you're just kind of going into your big growing or your second big growing season for you with with thinking about winter, being full-time on the farm. How are you feeling about it? Are you glad that you made this choice? Is it is it feeling overall positive for you and your family and the farm? Definitely. Yeah, I feel really great about it. The farm has grown in ways I never would have imagined. And there's days when it's like three o'clock on a Tuesday and all four of us, my husband and me and my daughters are just like hanging out in the kitchen. And it's, I just feel so lucky that we're able to do that. You know, our, our kids, as much as we try to separate the farm and the kids, you know, they are really out there with us a lot and learning so much. And I just, I'm, I'm really lucky that I get to, to spend so much time with them and create something really exciting in our community. Mm-hmm. Were you commuting to work before at a distance uh, that would cut into your time? Or were you working remotely? A little bit. I was working remotely even before the pandemic and then usually commuting in about twice a week. So I was already really lucky with my flexibility. And then, of course, the pandemic happened and then everybody was remote. So, But I was spending a lot of time like in a basement office locked away from everybody else. And my job also, I worked for an international company. So I had a ton of super early and like super late at night meetings with Asia. So it's definitely more flexible now than it was before. Yeah. So you were mentioning the articles I wrote about farming and parenting. And yeah, just to reiterate for people who haven't listened to other podcasts or read those articles or talked to real farmers, it's actually really hard to farm with your kids with you, as Rebecca was saying, in spite of what Instagram depicts. But I actually am just finishing up a book on this topic too. And I would say that it's such a consistent message that parents who are farming and have kids on their farm are definitely stressed. (laughs) You know, they feel pretty exhausted, but love how much time they get to spend with their kids. You know, if maybe they work 11 hour days, 12 hour days, but every of one of the meals they ate is with their kids, right? And that makes such a difference compared to if somebody's working long days like that off the farm or even just a long normal day with a commute and you're miss maybe missing two meals with your kids. So it's pretty special. I'm glad you're getting to do it. Thanks, Katie. It's so special. And I can't wait for the book. Congratulations. That's so exciting. Thanks. Yeah. I'm sure I'll be talking about it on here a lot when it's coming out. Okay. Since our audience is market farmers or people who want to be market farmers, obviously. I'm always curious about what tips and tricks we can share with each other. And you've already shared a ton, but I am curious to ask my question, what is the best thing you and your family on the farm have done for the farm so far? So it could be a decision, a tool you bought, something that's been really positive. Yeah, Mark and I were chatting about this earlier and of course had about a thousand different answers, but decided surprisingly, because I wouldn't have said this two years ago, but our favorite thing is our tractor. 
we are really using it more than we ever have. And as someone who's really physically not fit these days after, you know, all these pregnancies and I'm still nursing and I'm just as weak as ever, it's amazing to be able to really get real work done, even, you know, physical labor that doesn't require my body so much. So we've been trying to mechanize a lot more on the farm. We hadn't been tilling really until this year and we now are controversially doing uh, more tillage. <laughs> and just even things like pallet forks on the tractor. We got a subsoiler that really like gets deep into the soil. We're just using the tractor all the time, more so than we ever have before. And it's it seems to have really improved so much on our farm. So that we were able to get with like 0% financing from Kubota. And when we first had the farm, we were starting with sheep actually. So we had gotten the Kubota in order to have like a brush hog to mow down pasture. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really know that we would use it for anything related to flowers, but it's really helped us scale up rapidly. So I'm very excited just about what else we can figure out how to mechanize. How many horsepower is it? It's just 25. So it's, okay. it's little, but it get a lot done. But four wheel drive... Yeah. That's great. I love that answer. And a good tool is so worth it. And I, too, am amazed by the power of a tractor. <laughs> I know that people do farm without them, but I mean, some days you, that's just what you need. And it'll make the difference between a task that takes multiple days or a task you can do in five, ten minutes. It's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. The pallet forks are the biggest I, surprise yes. for me because when we bought them, I was actually really hesitant to. We actually purchased them for the geothermal project because there was all this stuff that was going to need to be moved around. And I thought it was a real like waste of money. But now everything's going on pallets. We're able to move stuff so fast and easily. Everything is organized. If you, if you have the tractor and you don't have pallet forks, like go for it. They're great. Yeah. I 100% agree. For us, we have them as part of our front loader, and that is probably, if we ever were like, well, we don't really need the tractor, that would be like the last thing I would give up because <laughs> it's just so powerful. And, you know, we talk a lot on the podcast and the magazine about all the different pieces that make up sustainability, and one of those is our bodies. And, you know, you're, you're burning almost no diesel or gas to operate your tractor for like 10 to 15 minutes to move some pallets. But the savings on our backs and our bodies is like profound. So I know it's a really expensive investment. Obviously, it's not for every farm and every scale, but I totally agree for farmers that are scaling up, especially somehow fitting into your budget and plan a quality tractor is Certainly kind of like your greenhouse, one of those tools that'll pay for itself as soon as you get it on the farm. So exactly. Yeah. I love it. Such a nice practical best thing. Okay. Anything else you would like to share with our audience today, Rebecca? I don't think so. You know, I just, I hope everyone out there is excited about farming. And I guess a lot of people this time of year are gearing up for like a winter's rest. And we're over here gearing up for some of our busiest months of all. And I don't know when this will come out, but I hope everybody loves their winter's rest and, and enjoys it. Yeah. Great. Yes. And people should definitely check out Rebecca's articles. She's written several now at this point, and it sounds like has more coming. And for people who, 
you can go on the website if you have a subscription and search by her name and they'll all pop up. And where else can people find you if they want to get in touch or see what's going on with the farm? So feel free to send me an email. It's just info at moonshotfarm.com. And then we're also on Instagram most actively. We try to post a lot of like behind the scenes to our stories there. Our customers really like to see like where their flowers are actually coming from. So so yeah, it's a lot of pictures of my husband. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of pictures of people doing things with flowers or vegetables. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, especially... Since this is not the slow season for you, thank you for sharing some time with me and with our audience. There's so much here. I'm sure people are grateful. Thanks so much, Katie. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Growing for Market podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider giving us a follow and a rating or review. It really helps others find the podcast. For more tips and tricks from farmer to farmer, check out our magazine at growingformarket.com. Whether you're a commercial grower or just want to grow like one, subscribe to Growing for Market magazine for the nitty gritty of growing, marketing, and the business of market farming. We publish 10 issues per year with articles written by experienced farmers on topics ranging from tools and techniques to farm business operations and marketing. If you've been listening to the Growing for Market podcast and haven't yet checked out Growing for Market magazine, we've made a change so you can now try the magazine for free. We've added a free month to the beginning of all first-time subscriptions. Try out the digital or paper magazine subscription for a month, and if it's not for you, cancel within 28 days and you'll never get billed. Even the most basic subscription gets you a year of the magazine, plus 150 back issues from the last 15 years. Digital subscriptions start at just $30 per year. So head on over to growingformarket.com and subscribe today to benefit from over three decades of writing by farmers for farmers in Growing for Market magazine.